This is the first in a series of talks by Joel titled The Practice of Inquiry 1, Preparation Meditation, recorded October 14, 2006, at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. So, let's take a look at the overview of why we are here. In the Quran, there's a verse that says, Wherever you turn, there is his face, meaning the face of God. So the idea is, everywhere is God. Meister Eckhart says, there is nothing but God. Shankara, the great Hindu sage, says of Brahman, who is their word for the ultimate reality, there is nothing but Brahman. We see a universe, and we think that it is a real universe, but really what we're seeing is nothing but Brahman, down to the smallest blade of grass. And, of course, the Buddhists talk about everything as being a manifestation of Buddha nature. So, the question is, how come we don't realize this truth that the mystics claim is universal. It's the truth all the time, everywhere. And the answer is our ignorance. And mystics use ignorance in a quite precise way. Normally we think of ignorance as something we don't know that's missing from our knowledge. But mystics use it in the sense of a verb, really, that we literally ignore this truth, this reality. That our attention skips over it, keeps missing it. And the reason we ignore it is because we are fascinated with an experience that we are some individual separate self. And then all the stories that our thinking minds create about this self running around in this separate world, a world that's separate from it. And then what the mystics of all traditions say, one way or another, is that in reality, this self, the supposed little separate self, just doesn't exist. It's as simple as that. And this dualistic experience that this self has of being a self in a world is a delusion. And it's a delusion because the supposed boundary that divides this self from the rest of the world and, in fact, all the boundaries that seem to divide all the objects in the world from each other, but particularly this first one, this first distinction between I and other, self and world, subject and object, this boundary is imaginary. And so this whole dualistic experience is imaginary. That that ultimate reality is a non-dual reality. It has no real distinctions in it. It is a non-dual consciousness, we could say, to use a more modern word. So this experience that we're having is a deluded experience. So, if we are going to realize this non-dual consciousness, what we have to do is stop ignoring it. And when we stop ignoring it, attention ceases to jump over it, and attention itself is nothing but a wave of awareness or consciousness, if you like. We could define it as the power of consciousness to focus on its forms. When we stop ignoring the reality, the ocean of consciousness, out of which attention arises, then attention sinks back into that ocean.
And there's the possibility, not the guarantee, but a possibility to realize, oh, yes, this is my true nature. This is the true nature of everything. But this cannot happen as long as attention is captivated by this story of I, the story of the self. So what we have to do is somehow dismantle the story. That's really what a spiritual path is all about. It's not about creating anything. The truth that we're looking for, the reality we're looking for is already here. It's not about acquiring something we don't already have. Although along the way we're going to want to acquire certain skills. But ultimately it's not about acquiring anything. In fact, it's about getting rid of things. Getting rid of delusion. There are two main ways then to dismantle this delusion of self. The first is to start living in accordance with the reality of selflessness. To start living it out through substituting for a motivation that is concerned about enhancing and protecting this little self that doesn't exist. A motivation that flows out of selfless love and compassion. When this love is directed towards some form of the divine, and then we try to surrender ourself to it. That in Sanskrit is called bhakti, the path of devotion, because the primary practice of that path, that approach, is devotional. It is devoting yourself, surrendering yourself, as a lover would, someone who's fallen completely in love with somebody else. They're ready to give up their life for the beloved. There's a catch, however, and that is to become a bhakta, you need an initiation. You need a personal experience of the divine. You can't fall in love with something you've never experienced. So you can't really start a bhakti path, genuinely start it, uh, until you have this kind of initiation, this kind of direct experience. Fortunately, just because you've never had an experience of the divine does not mean you can't start walking a mystical path. You don't need any experience of the divine, you don't need to believe anything, you don't need any dogmas, you don't need any religion, you don't need nothing except one thing. You need a burning curiosity. A thirst to know, who am I? What is this world? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What's it really all about? It's the, you know, the ancient question that human beings have asked since the beginning. But a Janana, who is someone who has this burning curiosity, who uses that as the motivation to walk the path. And it's often called the path of knowledge. Janana means knowledge. It doesn't mean uh, intellectual knowledge, but it means this direct perception. A Janana has this question burning all the time. That's really the difference between a Janana and just a normal deluded person. Maybe they have to do other things in life. Maybe they got a family, responsibility, all those things. But somewhere down there in the soul, that fire is burning and driving them. So that's what you really need to walk a Janana path or take this Janana approach. So on this retreat, we're going to ask the question, who am I? We're going to come at it from various angles and we're going to try to analyze it. We're going to start with who do you think you are and then we're going to see if any of that's true and we're going to get down to this. So the title of this retreat is Know Thyself and the subtitle is The Practice of Inquiry. 
which is the quintessential practice of jananas. So we are going to be doing a janana practice on this retreat, and we're all going to become, in a sense, jananis for this retreat. Here's what Gershom Sholem, a scholar of Kabbalism, says about this journey to find out who you are. It is by descending into the depths of his own self that man wanders through all the dimensions of the world. In his own self, he lifts the barriers which separate one sphere from the other. In his own self, finally, he transcends the limits of natural existence, and at the end of his way, without, as it were, a single step beyond himself, he discovers that God is all in all, and there is nothing but him. That is very beautifully and succinctly put. It's descending into yourself, getting to know yourself, using inquiry to penetrate these barriers. The barriers that separate one sphere from another. In other words, the boundaries, the distinctions. To discover their true nature. Oh, and you go deeper and you go deeper, back, back, back until you get to that first distinction, that fundamental distinction between I and other. And when you see that that is not real, when you see that that is imaginary, when you see through that, then, as the Kabbalists put it, you see God is all in all and there is nothing but Him. And it's the same in other traditions. The Sufis have a saying that comes from Muhammad, Whoso knoweth himself knoweth his Lord. Same idea. If you know yourself, you know the ultimate reality. Anandamoyama, this great contemporary Hindu mystic, it is by seeking to know oneself that the great mother of all may be found. And here's Hui Ning, Zen Buddhist. Our very self-nature is the Buddha, and apart from this nature, there is no other Buddha. So this is the same principle in all these traditions. Know thyself, and you'll know reality. So, on this retreat, we're going to practice self-inquiry. And, as I said, the purpose is to gain a direct non-conceptual insight into various aspects of who we think we are. To gain this insight, we need an undistracted mind. And the way we get an undistracted mind is, of course, through some meditation practice or some contemplative prayer practice. So, today, we are going to review two foundational meditation practices, concentration and choiceless awareness. And this morning we will review concentration, which for those of you who have a Buddhist background is called shamatha in uh, Sanskrit. And we will go over the basic instructions for it and then we will do a little practice. So, Meditation has three stages, the way I teach it anyway. The first stage is concentration, where we train our attention to focus on one object and to ignore everything else. So this is a way of training our attention to be still. This leads to stability of attention. And Tibetans call this calm abiding, a state of calm abiding. You enter a state of calm abiding, and that state is a very useful state. Again, the Buddhists call it a serviceable mind. It's a very useful state because in that state you can contemplate various aspects of reality and you can gain insight into what is going on. So, here's the way the Tibetan master Lati Rinpoche describes concentration practice. Setting the mind on an object is likened to tying an elephant to a post. 
The rope symbolizes mindfulness. The post symbolizes the object of observation. The elephant symbolizes one's mind. So, we pick some object. Most of you have picked the breath. A few of you have picked the mantra. Those are the most traditional. And then we just simply focus our attention on the object. And through this practice, we attain stability, but not only stability, we also attain clarity. And actually, clarity follows from stability. Don't worry about trying to generate clarity. Just really work on the stability. The clarity will follow from the stability. So then, uh, once you've chosen your meditation object, then you need to have good posture. So, uh, what is good posture for a meditation practice? First of all, is to sit upright on a pillow or a chair. For these kinds of meditation, it really doesn't matter. The important thing, though, is to be upright but be very relaxed. Body very relaxed. Because the mind needs to be very relaxed. We're going to use a little bit of effort here and there, but the rest of it, we want the mind to be as relaxed as possible. So body relaxed, mind relaxed. Find some place to put your hands where they won't fidget. So you can fold them in your lap, you can place them on your thighs, up, down, doesn't ultimately matter. But just some position you always return to every time you sit down to meditate, and it's never a problem then. You find what's comfortable for you, and then that won't distract you. And then for this meditation, keep the eyes open, particularly for this meditation and particularly for this retreat because we're going to need to be able to see. We're going to contemplate visual things. So we need to be able to do this with our eyes open. Very important. So keep your eyes open. Let your gaze fall someplace comfortably in front of you. But you're not staring at anything. All the attention is going to go to your meditation object, not out through your eyes. But you're setting them just like you're setting your hands so they won't be tempted to wander around the room. And then the actual concentration practice requires the application of our four principles of attachment, attachment, <laughs> attention, <laughs> commitment, detachment, and surrender. We have to pay attention, obviously, to the meditation object. <clears throat> we have to have a commitment to pay attention to this object, even when it gets boring, which it will, so you might as well just recognize that right out front. We need to be able to practice detachment by ignoring all the distracting thoughts, desires, whatever it is that arises in consciousness that wants to pull our attention away from that object. And detachment, let's remember, very important. The spiritual definition of detachment is neither grasping nor pushing away. And this is really important because what most people do when they think of detachment is they want to push everything away. But that's just another form of grasping. It's the opposite of grasping. So when we are distracted without any fuss, we notice it, bring the attention back. And then the final principle is surrender. And that is to not try to squeeze something out of the practice, to get something out of the practice. The practice will show you what it has to show you when it wants to show it to you. You just have to show up and do it. Anything extra is interfering with the practice. So this is why in Buddhism they say, you turn Dharma, Dharma turns you. Yeah, you have to get there, you have to get down on your pillow or sit in your chair, whatever it is, and you have to start the practice, but then you surrender to it and it does you. Once you become somewhat familiar with the basics of concentration practice, there are several ways you can refine it. One of them is to start narrowing the concentration, uh, the focus of your concentration, I should say, on some point where the breath passes through your body. So uh, the two that are usually uh, picked in the Buddhist tradition are the nostrils, 
the feel of the breath actually in the nostrils as it's passing in and out, or the abdomen as it rises and falls, and you can even try to pinpoint it more closely, sort of the center of the abdomen where it rises and falls, just, just below the belly button. And so after you spend a few minutes just concentrating on the full breath, you can narrow the focus down and spend some time in a very narrow focus concentrating on either of those points. Or some people find it's easy where it passes through the heart, the heart area in the chest. So that's one way you can refine the practice and build more concentration. Another way, and very important to learn to do actually, is to use introspection to check for two faults, laxity and excitement. Introspection is simply where you take a piece of attention and you sort of stand back and watch the practice. Oh, am I doing this right? Am I really doing the practice? You don't want to do this all the time. It'll interfere with the practice. You do it every once in a while, just to sort of check in on what's going on. And the two faults you're looking for, excitement and laxity, are the two main things that interfere with building concentration. Excitement comes from the mind being worked up and getting involved in uh, long chains of compulsive thinking. Uh, it'll happen usually, oh, if you've got some problem you're trying to solve at work or a relationship or something like that. And you sit down to meditate and the mind just starts going on that problem. It's too many thoughts, excited mind. The antidote to excitement, whether it's gross or subtle, is to relax your effort. And for most people, that's counterintuitive. When we realize we're excited and we, we can't meditate, we, we sit down to meditate and the mind's off on something else, our instinct is to plow more effort into it. Force that mind to sit there and stay on the breath. But that is really what's causing the excitement of the mind. So the more you try to force it, the more excited it gets. So this is the antidote to excitement. Relax the effort. Relax the effort. Laxity is when you start to space out and you start to lose track of the meditation object because you're starting to drift. That is the worst of all the faults because it is the most deceptive. It feels very good, and I'm sure it's good for your blood pressure and, you know, things like that. But there's no clarity of the mind. So you think you're meditating, you think this is great, and it becomes easy to do, and the more you practice it, you know, the easier it becomes. It feels good, it seems great, but because there's no clarity, there's no chance of insight. You need the clarity of mind for the insight. So, the antidote is then to increase the effort a little bit, a little bit. And the great analogy in the East is like tuning a guitar string. If you tune the uh, string too tight, the note is sharp. If it's too loose, the note is flat. So you have to experiment and find out just what is the right amount of effort you need to get that stability and then that clarity. But as we go along, you know, there's degrees in which you can really fine-tune a note. We used to have a saying in the film business that came from the music business, good enough for rock and roll. And what that meant was rock and roll musicians, you know, it's okay. You don't have to have it absolutely precisely tuned. So here we want to be playing in a concert orchestra. We don't want to be rock and rollers. But it takes time. It's not something that you just get at. So just keep tuning it, tuning it, and pretty soon your own discrimination gets finer and finer. All right. Let's try a round of concentration practice. First thing you want to do, after I ring the gong, is locate your meditation object. Then you want to rest your attention on it. 
Then when you're distracted, you want to notice you're distracted, and gently but firmly, without any fuss, bring your attention back to your meditation object. Just that simple. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. The Buddhist sage Ashvagosha says, People are tied down by a sense object when they cover it with unreal imaginations. Likewise, they are liberated from it when they see it as it really is. Hence, the sense object itself is not the decisive cause of either bondage or emancipation. It is the presence or absence of imaginations which determine whether attachment takes place or not. This is a very important point here. And one of the things that distinguishes a mystical path from dualistic religions, and there are dualistic versions of almost all the great traditions. In a dualistic version of a religion, there's uh, good and evil, and generally this world is considered evil. Uh, the sensory things are considered evil, sinful. It's a world of sin and, and so forth. Then there's another world someplace, heaven or nirvana or whatever, where everything is wonderful. And so the task of a spiritual person in that sort of religion is to somehow get rid of this world migrate to that world or wait for the second coming, it's going to come to them or something like that. But that is not the mystical view. So this is what Ashvagosha is saying here. It's not the phenomena that we experience that causes the problem. In their nakedness, delusion only arises in relation to thought. It's not necessary that they would delude us. If we saw what thoughts really were, there would be no problem. But we reify the thoughts. We take thoughts to have a reality that they do not have. That is our problem. So, this is what we want to uh, turn our attention to. How can we see objects as they really are? So, the first step is to interrupt the thinking mind's habit of mentally identifying everything that arises in consciousness. Give it a name. And, as I've said so many times, this is the beginning of duality. When we name something, when we name this uh, lamp, lamp, we have created a boundary, a distinction that separates it from everything else that is not a lamp. And so already we are involved in duality. And one of the things we don't realize is 
we have fused this thought, this name, this label, this image with the sensory <coughs> phenomena that's arising. But this is not a lamp. <laughs> you see, it doesn't have a label. It just is. It just is. What my Sekhar called its isness. What a Buddhist would call its suchness when we withdraw that projection. That's what we can begin to see here. Now, normally, this mental habit we have of immediately identifying everything that arises with a name, a label, happens so fast we just don't even notice it. But occasionally in our lives, just in our normal lives, there are situations that come up that we do notice what's going on. Years ago, when we first started coming up to Cloud Mountain here, there was a little band of peacocks living on the property. You know the peacocks, those big birds that show off, they're spreading their feathers, and they make these god-awful noises, and they hop around. They don't really fly, but they can get up to a tree, and then they can come down, and stuff like that. And we'd be here meditating, and especially somebody's here for the first time, thing falling on the roof and then there's this clomp clomping around and kind of scratching and like that and you know the mind goes what on earth is and there's a huge gap it doesn't know it's a beautiful moment by the way for the mind it doesn't know attention has flown to that of course it's not staying on the breath when you hear that and then the mind starts creating labels I mean is it one of those demons Maybe they're real, a Garuda bird or something? What could it possibly be? And then the memory comes, oh, when I was driving up here three days ago, I saw those peacocks on a tree. That must be what it is. And so the label comes, Sam, peacock, good, go back to your meditation. So in situations like that, we can see the whole process because of the big gap. And we can also see how desperate the mind is to get it labeled and safely packaged and put away someplace. Because if we didn't label a name, we wouldn't know what everything was intellectually, and my God, the world might disappear, which is true. The deluded world, samsara, something we keep going. It isn't just, you know, sitting there. It's something we keep generating. And when there's a gap, when it starts to break down, <sighs> we've got to keep it going. So what we're going to do here is try to interrupt that. We want to be able to distinguish the naked phenomena from the name or label that we superimpose upon it. The imagination, as in Ashwagosha's term. So what is the difference between the sound of a bird and the label bird? Or the smell of garlic, the naked smell of the garlic, and then the label garlic. And then walking down the path, there's a large leaf. There's the naked phenomenon, the mind says, oh, maple leaf. So we want to be able to sort of pull these apart a little bit. We want to be able to identify the gap there and discriminate between what is the naked phenomena and the name that we're trying to impose upon it. And we do this in the context of a formal meditation that we call choiceless awareness, which is very similar to vipassana, for those of you, again, who have a Buddhist background, a Sanskrit word that means insight. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get some insight into how the mind works right here at this point. So once we've attained some stability in our concentration practice and some clarity, then we can move on to choiceless awareness. It's hard, however, to stop the mind from labeling. It's so conditioned to do it, and it's so frightened of not doing it at all, that as an intermediary step, we're going to not ask it to stop labeling, but we're going to give it a much simpler scheme by which to label things. Because our inherited scheme is extremely complex. 
And it's built into the very structure of our language and our vocabulary. So there I say, this is a gray blanket that belongs to Lewis sitting over there in the chair. It's full of all sorts of imaginary relationships and boundaries and everything else. We're going to be exploring them at a later time. But it just seems such an obvious statement to say. So instead of having all these different names for very complex uh, forms of phenomena that constitute, we think, objects, we're going to simplify it down and we're going to have a very simple scheme. We're going to ask the thinking mind to label things in relation to six fields of consciousness, of awareness. And these distinctions between the fields themselves are still imaginary. It's just useful. It's not that that's the way things are. But we're going to divide up all the phenomena that arises in the consciousness, and we're going to say it arises in six fields, and those six fields are the sight field, the sound field, the sensation field, the smell field, the taste field, and the thought field. The thought field includes everything that we normally think of as mental, not just a formal thought, but an image, a memory, uh, anything that really doesn't arise in one of the other fields. And the one thing we didn't mention here and gives people a lot of trouble, I know from past experience, is emotion. And emotion tends to overlap fields, but for our purposes here, you can just try to detect immediately whether it is primarily a thought or primarily a sensation. So you might have a thought. You might be there just meditating and a thought arises about some colleague at work that you don't like and a thought says, oh, I just hate that person. And it's a emotionally charged thought, but it's basically a thought. So just treat it as a thought. If it's something like you just feel sad, you feel this soreness in the heart area, and, and you don't have any particular thought, then just label that sensation. Don't spend a lot of time worrying about it. You'll just get into more stories, and we're trying to get simple. So it's not so important to be accurate here. The most important thing is to have the mind just satisfied with this very, very simple way of labeling and naming. Then whatever phenomena arises, you identify in accordance with what field it's arising. So, if you're sitting here in meditation, you hear, ooh, 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 okay, say, sound. Gaw, 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 sound. Sound. If the mind then comes along and hears, ooh, ooh, and says, oh, that's a train, thought. That's a different phenomenon that arose. See, there was the woo-woo-woo, and then there's the thought, oh, that's a train. And so, now you say, yeah, okay. Sound, thought. Am I doing this right? Thought. I don't know if I'm really getting a thought. You following what we're doing here? Okay. The choiceless awareness, we talk about as though it were a different meditation, just for convenience sake, but it actually grows out of our concentration practice, the way a tree grows out of a seed, really. And the analogy that I like to use for this, which I'm sure most of you heard before, is a theater light. And there's one type of theater light that you can adjust the focus on, and so you can adjust it into a spotlight, where the focus is very narrow, all the light is focused into one point on a stage, and then that same light you can open up into a floodlight. And now you can illuminate the whole stage, and there might be lots of action going on on the stage, sword fighting or whatever, but the light stays still. The light doesn't try to follow the action, the light just stays still. And that's the quality of choiceless awareness that we're trying to cultivate. Whatever arises, whatever wants to move, whatever does anything, that's fine. Just stay still, like that open floodlight. Then, when you begin the meditation, start with concentration, 
Don't start with it wide open. Start with the spotlight. Spend a little time. Watch laxity. Watch excitement. Try to get the mind stabilized a little bit. You're probably, especially at this point, not going to attain a perfect state of calm, abiding, and clarity and all that. But try to get the mind settled down a little bit. And then you can think of you're opening up this spotlight. You're expanding attention. And you expand it into the sensory field. Itches, tingles, tensions. And just hang out there for a little bit. And then identify. A little pain, sensation. And then it let attention expand into the sound field. Ooh-woo. Sound. Hang out there for a little bit. If there are smells or tastes, identify smell. If not, don't worry about it. It's hard to stay in that field, especially in this environment. It's much better to do smell and taste when you're at lunch or at one of the meals. That's the perfect time to do choices, awareness, and smells and taste. But for now, if they're not there, that's fine. Then let attention expand out even more into the sight field. And then watch thought for a moment. Thought, thought, thought. Then finally allow your attention to expand all the way into the total field of consciousness awareness. All six fields. And you just sit there and whatever arises here, there, you just identify by the field. One thing be careful of. Do not try and identify every phenomena that comes to your attention. Or you'll go crazy. So you want to identify the most prominent. It's like you are watching a stage, the floodlights on the stage, and things are moving around, and people are moving around, and somebody comes to center stage and goes like that and moves off, and you're not following them, but once they're in center stage, you say, oh, sound. Oh, sensation. Thought. And if you start to feel you're doing it too much, relax, just sit back and watch for a while, and then start again. Notice that when we were doing concentration practice and you were concentrating on your meditation object, anything else that arose in consciousness was a potential distraction. Here, once you're in the total field of consciousness awareness, nothing can be a distraction. Sights, sounds, whatever is arising, even thoughts. The only thing that is a distraction is if your attention gets caught up following a train of thought that's creating a little story. And then you start to lose track of what you're doing. So if that happens to you, just notice that thought, and usually that'll be enough to cut the train. If you just identify this thought, and you'll be back to choiceless awareness. If you get completely lost, you may want to go back to concentration practice and just move through the fields again until you get to uh, the total field of consciousness awareness. Okay? All right, we're going to do one round of meditation. I will guide you through one round, and then you see for yourself. All right. Here we go. Begin with concentration on your meditation object.
watch for laxity and excitement. Adjust your effort accordingly. Attention is settled down and stable and clear. Allow it to expand first into the sense field. Become aware of whatever phenomena arise in the sense field and label them sensation. Now expand your attention further into the sound field. Whatever phenomena arise in the sound field, label sound. Now expand your attention to become aware of whatever smells or tastes may be present. If any smell or taste phenomena are present, label them smell or taste. attention to expand into the sight field. And whatever sight phenomena are present, label sight.
expand your attention to include your mental field, thought field, and purposely generate the thought, what should I think about? Notice that it is, in fact, a thought, and label it thought. Now relax and let your thinking mind generate whatever thoughts it wants, and label them thought. Now allow your attention to expand into the total field of consciousness awareness, keeping it still like that floodlight that illuminates the whole stage. And whatever phenomena arise most prominently in consciousness, label according to its field. If you get absorbed in a chain of thoughts forming a story, label the last thought that you're aware of, thought, and return to choiceless awareness. The pace at which I guided you from concentration to full choiceless awareness 
is the pace that I'm comfortable with. But when you practice without my guidance, one of the things you have to find is the pace that you're comfortable with. So go at the pace that you find the most effective. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. Okay, after we've practiced choiceless awareness and we've done labeling like this and we have had direct insights into the difference between naked experience and the mind labeling and so forth, we can start to make some refinements in our practice. And the first is to drop labeling. So the experience is you go through the fields, the six fields, you get to the space of the total field of awareness and phenomena arise and they're recognized as what they are without a label, just the suchness of them. You don't have to say sight or sound or sensation. It's just what it is. And then thought comes along and you don't even have to say thought, you just recognize it is thought without making that distinction explicit through a labeling. So that's the first adjustment you can make, and it's an adjustment you can make solo. You don't have to make it all at once. You might just try in the beginning just not to label the five sensory fields and just label the thought. You may try dropping labels for a while, see what that's like, and then start up again. If you find that you're spacing out or you're getting carried away with thought or you're losing that clarity in your practice. So again, you experiment with this. The second and related adjustment we can make then is when thought arises to allow it to self-liberate. And this is very important because even at an unconscious level, we tend to develop the attitude that thought is the enemy. And that if we could only shut that thinking mind up, everything would be fine. And so it starts to annoy us, and there's a subtle pushing away. It's not true detachment, which is neither grasping nor pushing away. And we start to judge our whole experience in meditation by how much thought was present. We say, oh, that's a good meditation. There are very few thoughts arose. Oh, it was a bad meditation. There are lots of thoughts arising. So we develop the subtle aversion to thought. And that itself then becomes a kind of obstacle. So this is what we want to recognize. So here is the Tibetan master Dilgo Kinsei, and this is what he says about it. It is completely natural that thoughts keep on arising. The point is not to try to stop them, which would be impossible anyway, but to liberate them. This is done by remaining in a state of simplicity, which lets thoughts arise and vanish again without stringing on to them any further thoughts. When you no longer perpetuate the movement of thoughts, they dissolve by themselves without leaving any trace. When you no longer spoil the state of stillness with mental fabrications, you can maintain the natural serenity of mind without any effort. Now, what he's talking about here when he says 
When you simply let thoughts arise and vanish again without stringing on to them any further thoughts, he doesn't mean that further thoughts aren't going to arise. What he means is that you don't feed the thought with a kind of uh, interest in the subject matter that forces more thoughts about that to arise, which is what creates the little chains which get woven into the stories which become the big dramas. So it's like a thought arises and if you just just allow it to arise and then don't do anything with it, it will automatically of itself liberate. Then another thought will come, but you look at that, allow it to arise, allow it to self-liberate. And this shows us we don't have to do anything about thought. We don't have to battle thought. We don't have to fight thought. Because there's nothing there to battle or to fight. Okay, and then the third thing to do is surrender even the subtle effort we make to hold attention still. And this morning, I compared choiceless awareness to a floodlight that opens up to illuminate the whole stage and all the movement going on in the stage, and yet the floodlight doesn't move around. It's not chasing after one thing or another. It's just being there. And we should practice this way in the beginning. But after you've practiced choiceless awareness for a while, you'll begin to notice that you're making a very subtle effort to hold that attention still, to kind of freeze it in an artificial manner. It's a very, very subtle effort. And when you notice that you are making that effort, when it becomes apparent, then you can try just letting go of the effort. And that means attention will have the feeling that it's flowing from one thing to another because something will catch your attention. And attention has that quality of being fluid as it naturally and normally is, but it's still not caught up in any stories or trains of thought. That's always the distraction in all meditation. So it's moving and yet it still maintains not so much a stillness but a better word is serenity, which Dilgo can say used. A natural serenity. These are subtle adjustments. You have to try them, play with them. It's like tuning the guitar string. And, you know, if you first let go, your mind might just take off. And then, okay, you maybe have to rein it in a little bit and see what it feels like. But it's more and more, you notice, we are relinquishing effort. Slowly but surely, meditation begins with a certain effort and a certain direction because we have to counter a certain conditioning and a certain habit. But once we've done that, we want to start in very precise and subtle ways to let go of more and more effort. So you play with that a little bit. When you can do that, when there's no longer any effort to actually hold attention, when attention is allowed to move where it wants, and yet we're not distracted by any stories and so forth. And when there is that natural serenity that Dilgo Kinsey said that's present, and the clarity, then what we call that around here is entering spacious awareness, or an undistracted space of awareness. So it's slightly different than choiceless awareness, or it's a refinement on choiceless awareness, just a little bit more relaxed form of choiceless awareness. Okay, let's do some practice. So we'll do one round of choiceless awareness, and don't jump all over these refinements. You know, you go at your own pace and whatever's going on with your practice, and apply these as needed, as necessary.
You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.